From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Emerson Sykes, a staff attorney here at the ACLU and your host. Just across the southern border in Mexico, tens of thousands of asylum seekers are stranded in squalid and dangerous conditions. They're seeking refuge in the United States, but the U.S. government won't let them in. That's because of a Trump administration policy widely known as Remain in Mexico, which forces the vast majority of asylum seekers coming through the southern border to wait in Mexico while the U.S. considers their cases. The Remain in Mexico policy is one of many new anti-immigrant measures designed to close America's doors to people fleeing persecution. Its human impact has been staggering. Shelters in Mexican border cities are overwhelmed, and many asylum seekers are homeless. According to human rights groups, scores of asylum seekers have been kidnapped, extorted, and sexually abused at the hands of cartels and criminal gangs. For many, access to the asylum system on the U.S. side of the border is out of reach. We're joined today by Ashoka Mukpo, a journalist working at the ACLU. He recently traveled to Ciudad Juarez and Matamoros on the Mexican side of the border to get a sense of what life is like for the asylum seekers stranded there. We'll also hear from Astrid Dominguez, director of the ACLU's Border Rights Center, about the broader fight for immigrants' rights. We'll start with Ashoka, who's with me in studio. A quick note for listeners. Getting in the spirit of the Halloween season, you might hear some creaking in the background. It's just our 40-story building swaying in the wind. Ashoka, thanks very much for joining us. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So you were reporting from Mexico last week for the ACLU. Tell us what you were doing there. So we thought that it was important to go to Mexico to actually speak to some of the asylum seekers who are trapped at the border there so that we could hear directly from them about what their experiences are and get a sense of what the conditions are for people who are stuck there right now. Before we went down there, and I worked with a Mexican photographer named Guillermo Arias, uh, we were a little bit nervous about how hard it was going to be to find people. Were we going to need to search different places until we find people who were willing to talk to us. And in fact, what happened was basically everywhere we went, we found the kind of stories that I've been reading in newspaper accounts of people who have been kidnapped, people who have been exposed to violence at the border. It was kind of crushingly easy to track people down. And what stands out at me in terms of what I saw is just an incredible amount of vulnerability and fear. These are people who have made incredibly challenging journeys and are fleeing real danger and persecution in you know, countries that have serious gang problems, political repression, in some cases, active conflicts. And instead of finding safety inside the United States, they've been returned back to dangerous situations in Mexico. There was this sense of concern, nervousness, outright fear, and feeling very perplexed about what is this system that I'm trapped in? Am I going to be able to make this asylum claim? I thought that America was a place that I could come to find safety and shelter and instead just being sort of trapped in this limbo. So can you just orient us briefly? All the folks that you talked to are subject to the remain in Mexico policy. Is that correct? Well, it was a little bit of a mixed bag. So the Trump administration has been very, very skillful, I think is one word that you could use to describe it, in constructing an entire latticed network of policies that have essentially dismantled the asylum system. Mm -hmm. So Remain in Mexico, I think, is the most well-known because it applies to so many people. Mm -hmm. But they've also implemented a policy called metering, 
which traditionally, when someone was making an asylum claim, they would just go up to the border, they would request asylum from a CBP agent, and they'd be processed and put into the system, likely detained for some period of time, perhaps released, depending on their case. And just CBP agent is a Customs and Border Patrol who's in charge of policing the borders. Yeah, Customs and Border Protection. And now under metering, what they've done is they've squeezed the number of people who can be processed at any checkpoint to a tiny, tiny trickle. So this applies particularly to asylum seekers from Mexico itself. Particularly in the southern part of Mexico, there's a lot of cartel violence, general political repression, conditions that people feel like they need to flee. And remain in Mexico actually doesn't apply to them because as Mexican nationals, they can't be returned back to the country that they're seeking asylum from. So instead, what's happening is they're being metered, which means they're given a number and told, well, when the number gets called up, then you can come back to the border and we'll hear your case and process you through the system. So in that case, you had people who were living in tent camps right next to the borders, um, very, very squalid, very difficult conditions. And then in addition to them, yeah, most of who we met were people who were subjected to the Remain in Mexico policy. The conditions in these camps, who were providing the basic services? The food, the shelter, anything about how they can make their way through the asylum process? Well, I think that's kind of the problem is really the answer to that question is nobody. It depends on the city that you go to. So in Matamoros is a particularly dangerous city. So the Rio Grande Valley, which encompasses cities like Reynosa, Nuevo Laredo, and Matamoros, they're in a Mexican state called Tamaulipas. The State Department's issued a travel warning to Tamaulipas that's on the same level as at places like Afghanistan and Syria, meaning it's so dangerous that the State Department tells Americans not to travel there at all. So this city, Matamoros, is so dangerous that the shelter facilities are very, very limited. Mm. So people have instead chosen to set up this tent camp that's right at the border. It's in a sort of pavement and dirt area that's right next to the bridge that leads to Brownsville, Texas. And I think that that's kind of one of the most heartbreaking things. You have people who are waiting for these distant court dates that are two months, three months in the future, living in tents, and you can see the United States in safety just right over the horizon. I mean, it's so close you can throw a football over it. And actually, there's been cases of people who've tried to cross the river who've just been so desperate and exhausted by this long wait in these impossible conditions. And there's a little sort of outcropping above the river where there's a series of crosses who've been set up to mark the children who've died when they've tried to make that that crossing. Wow. The conditions in the camp are very, very challenging. So you asked earlier who's providing food, who's providing medicine. It's really these small kind of ad hoc groups that are coming across the bridge from Brownsville to provide some basic level of humanitarian assistance. Hmm. But all of them said to me that it's nowhere near enough for what people need. The estimates of the number of people who are in this camp is somewhere on the order of about 2,000 people. Wow. So many of them were just these tiny children, very, very young. And the day that I was there, it was actually quite cold. Mm. People don't usually associate Southern Texas with the cold, but a storm front had moved in from Dallas. And when we got there, it was so cold that people were actually shivering and their teeth were chattering. So this is not like a condition that people had expected when they made their journeys and they didn't prepare for it. And it had rained so hard the night before that a lot of the water had actually flooded into people's tents. 
I spoke with a woman who runs a very small humanitarian aid charity, and she told me that the medical needs for people in the camp are just completely overwhelming, and her staff just doesn't have the ability to really provide the kind of things that people need. This is someone who's worked in Syria, she's worked in Bangladesh, Pakistan, and she told me that the conditions in the camp reminded her of some of these places. But the difference is, in a refugee camp in Bangladesh, for example, to take care of Rohingya refugees, mm. you'd have the presence of a lot of United Nations agencies. You'd right. have UNICEF there, you'd have UNHCR, these agencies that actually have the capacity to do things like a register of how many people are in the camp, how many children are in the camp, what the kind of medical conditions that everybody has. But the United Nations has not actually come to set up these type of facilities yet. Wow. What this means for people there is that there's really almost nothing to protect them and take care of them. And it's just so shameful. As an American, repeatedly, I would just kind of look around at this camp and see these these children who are running around with mud all over their feet, you know, clearly look like they're a little bit sick and just think to myself, we're doing this to them. This is not a byproduct of a natural disaster. This is not an event that's just some act of God that there was no way to prevent. This is an intentional policy that's intended to place people in this situation. And I found that to be very, very shameful. Well, it's a devastating picture that you paint. And you mentioned that Mexican Asylum seekers are metered, but folks from other countries are subjected to this remain in Mexico policy. And many of the folks you talk to, can you just tell us sort of what is the progression of their attempts to to seek asylum? Mm -hmm. You know, they apply for asylum and then they're put back in Mexico to wait for these long off uh, court dates. And many of whom I understand are never even able really to to make those court dates. Mm -hmm. So I think the important thing to remember about all of these policies is that the intention is not to streamline or fix the asylum system. Right. It's to break it. Right. So what they want is to make it so difficult for people to claim asylum that they just give up. Hmm. The typical, I'd say for someone who's uh, placed into what they call the migrant protection protocols, which is a misnomer, it's not protecting anybody, hmm. is they will show up for their initial screening with a CBP officer. And traditionally that would lead to an interview with an asylum official. This is a little bit complicated, so I don't want to get too far into the weeds, but it used to be that a specially trained asylum officer would run an interview with someone as they claimed asylum to see how credible their fear of persecution was. Right. And what we're reading now is that actually that process has been placed in the hands of CBP agents whose priority really isn't to help someone who needs to find safety. Their priority as an institution is to keep the borders as closed as they can. That's their mandate. So what winds up happening is people make their asylum claim, and then they're told, typically, okay, well, here's your court date. You have to go back to Mexico and wait. And once your court date comes up, you can come back to the border, show us this piece of paper, and then we'll take you to court. What they don't know, most people aren't informed about this, is that is only the first court date of what could be multiple, multiple hearings in front of a judge. So someone is going to get one of these pieces of paper that says, come back in three months, come back in two months. And there's no program to say for these three months, here's a place for us to put you. Here's some kind of like assistance. Here's some way for us to shepherd you and teach you what you're going to need to know to successfully navigate this process. It's really just they're kind of dumped across the border, right? Technically, what they're supposed to do is as they're processed in the asylum system, if they say... I am afraid to go back to Mexico. They're supposed to be placed in a secondary interview process that assesses the fear 
that they might have and how, you know, whether it matches the threshold that they need to be exempted from the program. But in practice, that's not really happening. And that's something that we heard from people repeatedly. So even as harsh and punitive as this policy is, from its internal logic of what it's supposed to comply with based on its regulations, those aren't even being followed. Wow. People say, I'm afraid to go back to Mexico. And CBP agents often just say, that's not our problem. And people have legitimate fears about remaining in Mexico. Yeah, absolutely. Like I said before, I wondered before I got there, was it going to be difficult to track these type of stories down? And in fact, everybody I talked to had just an unbelievably devastating story to tell. So one woman that we met in a shelter in Ciudad Juarez told us a story that when she was close to the southern U.S. border, that she was actually kidnapped by uh, Mexican police. The line that the Trump administration is giving us is that Mexico is safe. It's fine for them, right? We're just going to keep them in Mexico, and then they'll go through the court process. This is not a big deal. We just don't have space in the country. But her story of being kidnapped by police officers who extorted her and sent messages that she actually played to me from her phone back to her family family really, I think, shed light on the fact that there's really nobody to take care of these folks. There are some people in Mexico, there are some government officials, there are some shelter workers, there's legal advocates who are just running around like crazy, doing everything that they can to take care of this population. But there's also equally a tremendous number of people who see them as prey. Okay, let's listen to a bit of that interview. When the policemen called my mother, they told her that they had us here. They sent pictures of my children crying, of us all, because they'd separated us. They took my children away from me. Then they said, if you don't deposit this money, you aren't leaving. You mentioned that as punitive as this policy is, the U.S. government is actually not even obeying its own policy. One example of this seems to be the exemption that the policy contains for people that are, quote, from vulnerable populations. But from what we've seen and what you've seen, this is not being upheld. What kinds of folks in these vulnerable situations did you come in contact with? No, not at all. The circumstances for people that I would have qualified as vulnerable was especially painful to see. So, for example, there was one woman who was pregnant at the time that she made her first asylum claim, and she was quite advanced. I think she might have been somewhere between seven and eight months. And when she was processed by CBP at first, she told us that an officer said to her that, President Trump didn't want any pregnant women coming into the country and that she would be better off if she aborted her child. Wow. And then she went back to Mexico. And when she went into labor, she went back to the bridge to try to talk to CBP and see if she could get some assistance. And she was told again, this isn't our problem. Go home. So we caught up with her when she was living in one of these tents in the camps in Matamoros. And her baby at the time was five days old and just the tiniest little waif of a human being that you'd ever see. And it was just her with her four-year-old daughter and her newborn baby in this tent. She seemed quite sick when she was talking to us. She coughed a lot. She didn't look well. And I think we're going to play a little bit of audio from that interview right now. Yeah, let's take a listen. I arrived here and entered immigration on August 19th. They took me and held me for five days. Before they took me to a hospital, an official told me that Mr. Trump didn't want pregnant women or women with kids. So it would be better if I aborted my baby. It would be a better decision. I didn't say anything. I just looked at her. Did you see any semblance in any place of any kind of justice? Did you talk to anybody that had actually had an asylum hearing? You know, it's a little bit of a mixed bag. I think that people who are trapped in this program, 
they are getting their asylum hearings, but the method that's being used to conduct these asylum hearings is completely outrageous. So they have, for example, across the border from Matamoros in Brownsville, what are being called tent courts. And these are this sort of factory assembly line to run immigration hearings, where in fact the judge is not even present. So there are buses that pick people up from the border. They're shuttled to these courts, and I say courts very loosely. And there's an immigration judge that might be in California, might be in Chicago, might be in New York, anywhere across the country that video conferences in to run these hearings. And I've heard that there are as many as 100 or 120 a day that this judge will have to conduct. And they can't even physically see the person whose case they're evaluating, right? And when you're trying to make these decisions that have such gravity on people's lives in such a assembly line fashion, you are bound to make mistakes. You're bound to make oversights. You're bound to not evaluate people's claims with the kind of care and concern that they deserve, right? And I mean, it's so bad that uh, one high-profile immigration judge actually recently in an interview likened them to something that you might see in Russia or China. And again, the point isn't to fairly adjudicate people's asylum claims. The point is to try to keep them out. Well, I'm just struck by the fact that you, I know, have a background in international human rights activism, and I also have worked extensively and traveled all over the world. And we have gone in and out of our country without a care, without a problem, dozens, if not hundreds of times. And the just deep human injustice mm. of the fact that mm. these people who are fleeing, they're not just trying to hang out in the United States. These are mm. people who need refuge. Absolutely. And they're being blocked at the border. is just tragic in the, the grandest scale. And I'm wondering, having come back so recently from such an affecting trip, where do you think things are going? Do you see any hope for improvement in the short, medium, or long term? Oh, boy. That's a, that's a big question. I think it's important for us as Americans to really see the stakes of this crisis clearly and for what they are. Are we going to see our lives as somehow more valuable than the lives of our brothers and sisters in different countries in the world that need our assistance? Or are we going to downgrade them somehow to second-class citizens? And we're still working in the courts because we know that these policies are illegal and we're hoping that the courts will see the wisdom in that and make the correct ruling. But really this problem is political. And I think that's really important for people to understand is that we can't just rely on the courts to change it for us. We actually need to have our voices heard and we need to step up and demand that our representatives start to engage with this issue in a way that really clearly delineates what the stakes of this fight are, because this is about people's lives. And I want to say, because I think this is important, there's this idea that the Trump administration has really tried to advertise that people are just gaming the system. They're not legitimate asylum seekers, right? Mm. And I think we're going to need at some point to have a bigger conversation about what qualifies as legitimate, quote unquote, asylum in an era of climate change and increasing economic hardships in some of these countries. But even from the very classic definition of asylum, so many of the people that I talked to had such clear and obvious asylum claims. I spoke with one woman who was 18 years old and she'd participated in street demonstrations in Nicaragua against her president. And some of her friends came up missing. One was killed on the street. And she, at 18 years old, had to flee her home with her sister and come up to the border. I mean, 
if you saw her on the street, you'd think she was 14 or 15 years old. She was just so young and so vulnerable and so alone. And these laws were created to protect people like this. This is someone who, just for the virtue of being young and idealistic and wanting to have her voice heard and wanting to change the world around her, had to go on the run. And when she got to our doorstop, supposed beacon of freedom and democracy, like we're always telling the world that we want to spread those values, we've essentially slammed the door to her. Another man said to me, and I thought that this was really important and interesting, is he said, look, I don't want to leave Honduras. Hmm. I like my country. Hmm. He told me that he'd had a job working as a municipal employee in the government, but gangs had threatened him and his son because his son wouldn't sell drugs for them. So he had to flee. Otherwise, the two of them would have been killed. These are not people who are trying to game the system. These are people who have no choice but to leave their home. This is something that I think the whole world is struggling with right now. How do we delineate the value of human life? And to me, this is such a clear moral choice. You know, it's like we either all have equal value or none of us have value. Well, Ashok, I really appreciate you taking the time to come in and speak with us. But even more importantly, thank you for amplifying these important stories and for all of your great work. Thanks for having me, Emerson. Now let's turn to the political and legal context for what Ashoka just described. On the line from Texas is Astrid Dominguez, director of the ACLU's Border Rights Center. Astrid, thanks very much for joining us. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Emerson. Thank you for the invitation. So can you start off just by telling us very briefly, what is the Remain in Mexico policy? The Remain in Mexico policy, it's officially known as a Migrant Protection Protocols. And this program started back in December of 2018. This program was implemented by the Department of Homeland Security, and it pretty much sends people back to Mexico to wait for their asylum hearing. This program has sent back already over 50,000 people. Wow. They're processed and returned to Mexico with a notice to appear in U.S. Immigration Court. And this hearing happens normally months later, and the returned families are left to fend for themselves in extremely dangerous circumstances, which we've heard from Ashoka already. And uh, many of them have to come back to the ports of entry, like at 4 a.m. for the hearings, and then are re-detained or taken to 10 courts or other immigration courts. And they have to undergo this procedure multiple times, given that they will have to come back for multiple hearings. Well, as you mentioned, Ashoka painted this vivid picture of the squalid conditions that people are facing in the camps in Mexico. But I think part of what's difficult about discussing this issue is that the Remain in Mexico policy is just one of the many anti-immigrant measures that we've seen. And we are all familiar with the images from the inside of detention centers in the U.S., the photos of the families that were separated, port of entry requirements and third country travel bans. As the Border Rights Center, you're fighting on all of these fronts. How can you sort of place the Remain in Mexico policy in the context of this broader anti-immigrant effort? I mean, as you mentioned, this administration has a clear end game to keep migrants of color out of the U.S. by violating constitutional and human rights and basic decency. And they've advanced this agenda through inhumane and often legal border policies. They're making it harder for people to just seek asylum. They're actively trying to deter them from coming. Pretty much they're saying, you're not welcome here. And these are people that are fleeing horrific circumstances 
And our U.S. government is sending them back to Mexico and putting them also in dangerous situations. They're essentially sitting ducks for the cartels and other criminal gangs that control these areas of the border. Well, the ACLU has filed dozens at this point lawsuits challenging the new immigration policies instituted by this administration, but focusing in on the one regarding the Remain in Mexico policy. In that case specifically, can you walk us through what our arguments are for why this policy is unconstitutional and illegal? Sure. In February of 2019, the ACLU filed with partner organizations a lawsuit challenging the program, and the district court enjoined the policy as illegal. The Ninth Circuit Motions Panel allowed the policy to continue pending the government's appeal. And right now, we're just waiting for the decision on the merits of the injunction. So even though like three judge on the panel found that the policy was clearly illegal, they still allow this policy to continue. And this policy has now expanded. Originally, it started in Tijuana, and then it expanded to Juarez. And now it's pretty much across the entire Mexico border. In um, Tijuana, Mexicali, Juarez, Laredo, and Matamoros. So that's three of her four border states. And people that are crossing through Arizona are being sent to California to get MPP'd or to get processed through MPP, Migration Protection Protocols, also known as the Remain in Mexico policy. And if I understand correctly, this upside from being obviously inhumane, this policy also fails to uphold some of the due process rights that asylum seekers are due. For example, uh, agents are not asking folks if they're fearful of returning to Mexico uh, or otherwise doing their due diligence to confirm the legitimacy of their asylum claims. Is that correct? There's plenty of issues with MPP. Among many of those are the fact that immigrants can find representation. Attorneys can travel to Mexico to meet with their clients. So it's been really pro bono attorneys and different smaller projects that have come together to just go to Mexico, either Matamoros, Tijuana, to give Noyarts presentation and sort of give basic orientation to migrants on what's going to happen. They're not able to access legal representation because they are in Mexico. And they are in Mexico and they aren't in shelters. I mean, some of them are living in camps. And yes, when they first encounter CBP and they're processed and they're sent back, if these are pregnant women, um, they don't take that into consideration. If they're vulnerable populations, they don't take that into consideration. The ACLU Border Rights Center and the ACLU of Texas filed um, a couple of weeks ago a complaint about pregnant women being returned on uh, the MBP program. And there was a case of this one woman who her labor started and CBP took her to the hospital. Apparently, they stopped the labor and then they sent her back to Mexico. So we're talking about the U.S. government even going that way. Um, and sending this woman back, knowing that while they're waiting, they're living in a camp, there's no way they can access the medical attention for them and their pregnancy. And some of those accounts from those pregnant women that said, look, the agents told us it's better if you abort the baby because Trump doesn't want any babies here. I mean, this is a level of cruelty as well that CBP and this administration are inflicting on the most vulnerable of asylum seekers. How exactly is the administration justifying this horrific policy? Well, what they're claiming is the numbers are very high and uh, we can't process all these people. And while the numbers are, you know, not where near historic high, there is a different population that's arriving to our border and these are asylum seekers. 
And the U.S. government, it's not trying to deal with this population in a humane and compassionate way. And they're trying to just deal with them in an enforcement way, the same way that they would deal with an economic migrant. Like back 20 years ago, when you had all these men coming and they would you know, be apprehended and some deported. And they're trying to treat them the same way, like, oh, I just want to deter them from coming. But these are asylum seekers, and this is a different population. Now, another big difference is that this is an agency that over the past decade has grown so much. So they have like twice as much money in agents. For them to claim they can't process people accordingly or they don't have capacity to do it in a humane way, it's just a lie. They do have the money. And they do have the agents. And also, border patrol agents should not be dealing with asylum seekers, should not, you know, I agree, they should not be taking care of babies, and they shouldn't be dealing with this population. But they're also not outsourcing it to experts, child welfare professionals, pediatricians. They're not doing any of that either. They're just saying, we can't do this, this is out of control. So they are creating this problem. And instead of sitting down and trying to think, about solutions of how do we process asylum seekers in a humane way, they just decided, oh, let's just send them back to Mexico. It's easier. Well, and the policy explicitly exempts people from vulnerable populations, but it's not at all clear what definition of vulnerability the government is using. Do you understand what they understand to be vulnerable people? No, they, it's, you know, it's funny that you mention that because they often claim different things. At the beginning, when they announced the program, they said they were not going to be accepting vulnerable population, including pregnant women, you know, people with disabilities, kids, families, and all of that is like out of the window. And when we ask about vulnerable populations, in some sectors, they say, oh, sure, we'll take out those people. We won't process them under MPP. And some others says like, oh, no, I cannot do that. So there isn't really a unified criteria. And it's really up to the discretion of the sector uh, chiefs and or uh, port directors in, in, in the border. And that's a problem, too, because they're not operating either in a transparent way, nor meeting with NGOs so we can have this conversation. Like, we don't know who to go when, when we have these cases, when these cases are flagged for us, when we have a pregnant woman trying to pass, trying to get processed. We don't know who to go. And there needs to be a lot more transparency about how they do things. As you mentioned, we're coming up on almost a year of this policy, and you talked about how hard it is to track these cases. Have any of these asylum seekers been able to make it all the way through the process and actually get granted asylum? Uh, That's a great question. I am not aware of anyone that has gone through the whole process and been admitted. Like, I know people have gone multiple times for their hearings, but not like that they've been successful so far. We have over 53,000 people on NPP. So 53,000 people have been sent back to Mexico and different areas. It's a great question for the U.S. government that they often don't disclose that information. You know, how many people have been processed? How many are processing per day? How many people have gone to court? Given how dire the situation is for these asylum seekers and other folks trying to enter our country, Where do you see this situation going over the next several months and even the next year or so? We need to pay a lot of attention um, and expose what the government is doing by sending them back to Mexico. Um, People think that the problem's gone, the numbers are down, people are not crossing, but people are 
in Mexico and thinking that this is something that we should continue and a program that is working should outrage every American. Um, members of Congress should not give one more dime to CBP to continue to do this program. They should defund this program as well. We're waiting on the decision on the merits of the injunction and see if this program can be stopped. But if not, Congress needs to step in. And all of us need to demand that this program ends. We can't continue like this, you know, putting the responsibility on someone else's backyard. Those are very clear steps that the administration and that Congress need to take. And you mentioned that our listeners and other concerned Americans need to pay attention. Is there anything else that you recommend that people can do to help either on the humanitarian side or on the policy change side? I'm sure there are lots of great organizations on the ground in different areas of our border that are helping. There are attorneys that are going to volunteer. Um, you know, we can connect them to also people that are on the ground helping. But calling their members of Congress, calling CBP, making sure that they know that this is not acceptable, that we will not tolerate this, and that we're better than this. We cannot continue to just shut the door on those who need it the most. This is not who we are, and this is not who we will be. Astrid, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us, and keep up the great work. Thank you, Emerson. It was my pleasure. Thanks very much for listening. If you enjoyed these conversations, please be sure to subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. You can support the show and the work of the ACLU by donating at www.aclu.org/liberty. Till next week, peace.